So it's, it's just been a wonderful day. And um, I want to say thank you very much to everyone who's been here. I'm absolutely loving today. It's been wonderful for me as somebody who is meant to kind of not get caught out next week on Thursday night to have lots of revision and lots of interesting thoughts and ideas to share. So um, I'll be stealing all of them. Um, so I'm just going to pass over now um, to our chair, James Kirkup, and to our wonderful panelists who James will introduce. And our last session is on politics in a volatile age. Thank you. Thank you very much. Can, is this team turned on? Yes. Good. Hello. Um, thank you all uh, for staying. I was going to keep coming. For staying, for staying with us to the bitter end. Um, I'm James Kirkup. I'm the director of a think tank called the Social Market Foundation. Once upon a time, I was a journalist trying to make sense of politics, but I, I don't have to pretend to know what's going on anymore. So I, yeah, I've, yeah, I'm, I'm in the dark. Uh, I'm delighted to be joined by uh, two of our leading experts on public opinion and Anand Menon. Um, uh, the far side, um, yeah, the, far, uh, the far end, Joe Twyman of, Del of Delta Pol. Um, uh, the, uh, the unique t TV is Anand Menon from UK and Changing Europe. Uh, and Deborah, no chuntering. Uh, and Deborah Mattinson from Britain Thinks. Um, everyone is going to talk for about 15 or 20 minutes each, as it was on it. 35 minutes, <laughs> um, about three minutes each, um, some opening thoughts, then we will have a bit of a chat, uh, and then we will go to your questions and observations. The title of the event, I'm told, is Politics in a Volatile Age. So hopefully we're going to try and knit together some of the themes and ideas that you've been hearing about all day, um, sort of following through the observations about the way voters behave, the way they see the world, how that will affect parties and ultimately lead on to the business of governing and policy making. Um, so I think we decided, or I'm going to arbitrarily decide that, that Joe is going to go first, um, and, then, and then Deborah, and then TV's Anand Menon will conclude. Thank you, James. And uh, I'd like to thank the UK and the Changing Europe and the British Election Study and King's College for providing me with an opportunity to talk about the general election. Uh, this has not occurred for nearly... I haven't even got to watch on. Time doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> uh, it hasn't happened for nearly two hours. Uh, in that two hours, I hope that nothing has changed since, uh, uh, since I last spoke. But I'm going to talk about volatility. And to start off with, I'd like to talk about volatility in the, in the context of this general election. We have seen the polls move a bit, some of them, perhaps. In the more recent polling, we've seen Labour gradually edge up, the gap between the Conservatives and Labour close. But generally speaking, when you look at the underlying data, actually there hasn't been much volatility in this election campaign. There was lots of talk before the campaign started about the, the bungee cord, if you like, attaching some Labour voters to their party identity, and how in certain areas of the north of England, for instance, and other areas as well, people at the moment, or rather at the moment the election was called, prioritised their Brexit identity, whether they were a Lever or Remainer over their party identity, but once the election was called, there was a theory that this would snap back and that they would return to their, their home of, uh, of a Labour supporter with a historic animosity towards voting Conservative and in some cases 
an animosity towards Boris Johnson specifically. Uh, we shall see the degree to which that is true in the areas in which it was the case uh, this time, not this time next week, but just, uh, just in advance of that. But as I say, the, the underlying data actually has been pretty consistent throughout this election. When you ask people what's the most important issue facing the country, Brexit has been at the top for some time. If you ask people what's the most important issue facing you and your family, health has been at the top throughout the entire campaign, indeed for some time before that. If you ask people which is the best party to deal with health, Labour in our polls is just a little bit behind the Conservatives. If you ask who is best to deal with the issue of the national health, uh, sorry, best to deal with the issue of Brexit, the Conservatives are ahead by some distance and have been consistently throughout the campaign. That data hasn't moved much. Similarly, the data around who would be best to deal with the economy hasn't moved much. And so the Conservatives are ahead on the issue most important to the country. The Conservatives are ahead on the issue that is most important to you and your families. And the Conservatives are ahead on what has historically been the most important issue. And that data hasn't shown much volatility. Similarly, Boris Johnson is around about close to being in positive territory for his ratings, for his personal ratings. And now that is, uh, that is a very high score for any, any political figure in this country. Jeremy Corbyn is a long way behind. And so has it ever been the case that a party has come from behind on leadership and the economy to win the most seats at a general election? No. Never happened in the history of post-war politics for when we actually have the polling on this. And so my sense is that that will not be volatile. Those rules will be maintained. But of course, there are three reasons to think that volatility may be returning to British politics after this election. The first of these is that, obviously, there's still a week to go. We have the end of the NATO summit. I believe that Donald Trump is standing up to speak right now. Uh, and if anyone knows how to, uh, how to throw a cat amongst the pigeons, perhaps even in literal terms, uh, then, it would be, uh, then it would be Boris, uh, that would be Donald Trump. Boris Johnson will have just finished speaking. I, I haven't heard any reports of things he said. It, I think it's unlikely that uh, that will make a difference. But these things all have the potential to make a difference. Similarly, on the 6th, of December, we have the leaders' debate between Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson. Repeat of that first debate. That could make a difference. There's still a week to go. It's also about the individual constituencies, 650 separate battles, and the debate between Brexit and party identity, Leave versus Remain, Conservative versus Labour, and the influence that that could have in individual constituencies, and then perhaps even independence versus unionism north of the border all reasons for volatility. And then lastly, of course, if the Conservatives don't win a majority, it could well be the case that Boris Johnson ceases to be Prime Minister. He runs out of friends in Parliament and struggles compared to the combined might of a Labour-led, and I do stress Labour-led, partnership, coalition, however, one, however you want to characterise it, propped up with uh, Lib Dems and the SNP, but what would they ask for in return? And would they even be able to arrange that in the time they have? All of those are reasons for uncertainty and volatility. And I guess we will know better in, uh, in just a few, days, uh, a few days' time. But for now, I'll hand, uh, I'll hand over to whoever's next. Um.
whoever is next is is Deborah. I will ha I will hand over the microphone. So. Great. Oh, share, yeah, I have another. I have my own actually, oh, but I, no, I'm happy to have yours. Sorry, Thank share, you. It's perfect. Time. Thank you. Thanks very much. And um, hello, everybody. I, I was going to step back a little bit um, in the first instance from the election and look at the context, the sort of backdrop that this election is being held in, because I think it's really important when we start to look at the election and what might happen. And that backdrop is the most gloomy and pessimistic that I've ever seen in many, many years of looking at public opinion. So we find that six out of 10 of us feel pessimistic or very pessimistic about the state of the country. And that is much higher if you're young, if you're working class, or if you're urban, if you live in a city. In focus groups, we ask people to tell us the first word that springs to mind when they think about the country. And the words that they most often choose are divided, angry, or confused. And we see a 12% drop in the number of people who think the UK is a good place to live right now, year on year. Um, and a 7% drop in people feeling better off than they did a year ago, down to just a quarter. So Brexit hasn't caused this, but it has made it worse. 74% think that Brexit is going very badly, and 20% think it's going badly. That is basically the one thing that reminds, unites Remainers and Leavers, is this sense that the process has been an utter disaster. One of the things that we do in focus groups is, um, well, we, we steal other people's slogans. We looked at Trump's slogan, Make America Great Again, and we thought, what would happen if you did that in the UK? So make Britain blank again and got people to fill in that gap. And the words they most often choose, united, safe, calm, but the word that came up most often, can anyone guess? Normal. <laughs> make the, make Great Britain normal again is what people want. But the problem is this. People can't decide what normal is. Okay, so that's where it gets a bit... We get very sharp divide. Um, the, the, the work I use most often when I'm looking at this values divide is, is some work that Lord Ashcroft did immediately after the referendum where he asked about all of the isms, so multiculturalism, social liberalism, feminism, globalization, environmentalism, were they a source for good or evil? Um, and leavers chose evil and remainers chose good. Um, and that inter interestingly also correlates, looking beyond Britain, at whether or not people are likely to vote for Trump or not. So if you are likely to vote for Trump, you are likely to think that all of those isms, the isms that are about being, if you like, open, um, are, are a bad thing. So another thing the electorate can agree on, though, is that politicians, in fact, probably all elites, but certainly politicians, are not to be trusted. And my feeling is when we look back at this election, trust will be the thing that we think about more than anything else when we think about what actually happened um, in, in the election, whatever does happen. Just 6% say that politicians understand them, and 74% say that the UK political system isn't fit for purpose anymore. And they blame everybody. They blame all politicians, regardless of their hue, for three things, playing political games, putting their party ahead of the country, for being indecisive. And this is one area where Boris Johnson does slightly better. I'll come back to that in just a moment. And focusing on Brexit too much at the expense of the things that matter to them, so NHS, crime, etc. When they look at all of those party leaders that are on offer at the moment, they are distinctly underwhelmed. So 
we see a few interesting things. Farage has disappeared completely. In a focus group I did a couple of weeks ago, people thought he was the leader of the Lib Dems, and I'm not joking. <laughs> that is literally what two people out of the focus group thought. Um, Joe Swinson is also unknown, and when we ask what, what three words can you use to describe her, they can't think of any. Um, although there was a poll, rather humiliatingly, that, that suggested that the more people saw, they less they liked. But I'm not really picking that up particularly in focus groups. Um, Jeremy Corbyn uh, is, is sort of treated with contempt, I think, really, by the electorate. Um, one of the things that I asked people recently is, what fictitious character would each of the main leaders be? Jeremy Corbyn's fictitious character is Where's Wally? As one person said, uh, he's a little bit useless and a little bit absent. Um, Boris Johnson, and here's where it gets interesting, because he, you know, the electoral divide is about your Brexit vote, and his fictitious character depends on whether you voted leave or remain. So if you're a leaver, I'm not making this up, I promise you, um, he's a bit James Bond, actually. <laughs> He's a bit sort of dashing, and he's going to move in. He's decisive. He's going to sort it out. But if you're a Remainer, he's Homer Simpson in the power room saying, what button was I meant to press again? He's sort of chaotic in a, in a bad way. In a poll that we did recently, the top three attributes for both men are out of touch, dangerous, and dishonest. And I've never seen a situation where both of the main leaders on, on offer are held in such low regard. Um, don't know wins on pretty much every leaderly attribute that you want to test on. But in the end, um, and this is the closest I would get to a prediction right now, when you take those don't knows out, the least disliked of the two is Boris Johnson. So just finally to end with it, you know, going back to the gloom, um, only, four, only one out of four of us supported holding a general election now, and six out of ten do not believe that this general election will resolve Brexit. So I think whatever happens, the electorate are going to be very sad indeed. Thank you. Can I, can I sir, thank you very much. Bef before I hand over, hand over to Alan, just give him another minute to actually compose his, his, his remarks. Can I just uh, press uh, both, actually both Joe and, and you, Deborah, for a question that arises from what I think some of you both just said. If the electorate really is as gloomy, as pessimistic, as full of contempt for the political class as a whole, shouldn't that be pointing towards fairly low turnout? Are we seeing any evidence so far that people are responding to the utter failure of the people who try to govern us by simply saying, I, I, don't want, I want no part of this, I will not participate? Or Because certainly it seems as if we are, as a nation, simultaneously angry with our politicians and yet, by, by our anger and despair, more engaged than we might have been a while ago. The question, of the question of engagement is an interesting one. And what can sometimes happen when thinking about these things is that noise gets mistaken for volume. And you can mistake the fact that the same number of people are engaged and are now more engaged and making more noise with more people being engaged. Uh, the data that we have suggests that there might, and it's very, very difficult uh, 
with these sorts of things, but there might be a slight drop off in turnout, that's but not. That's yeah, but not a uh, but not a significant um, not a significant change. I think that uh, I think you do have some people who are, as I say, more engaged than they were previously. I don't think there's been a massive uptake in engagement uh, in terms of the numbers of people engaged, and I also think that among a certain proportion of the population, Boris Johnson is perceived, at least so far, to be a change candidate to some degree, even though he has been within the upper echelons of Conservative Party politics for over a decade, that's how he is perceived by a certain proportion of the electorate. Mm. I think that's right. I, I think that, um, well, I mean, that all the data suggests that people are actually not very engaged with this election. They're not picking very much up. Um, I, it's hard to see, I think, what, what this, how this will actually play out in the end in terms of turnout, but my guess is it won't make that much difference because what, what I pick up is that people, whilst they are despairing, they also do feel quite a strong sense of duty about this election, which sort of makes their despair worse because they don't know how to, they don't know what to do. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, it's my job in a sense to listen to undecided voters rather than people who've made their minds up, so I do spend more time doing that, but I find them really very worried indeed because uh, you know as, as we've already said those sort of tribal party um, loyalties have broken down and people don't know what to do with their vote but I think they do feel that they should vote. Around about a quarter of Labour leave voters say that they are likely to vote but they don't know who they're going to vote for. A quarter. Yeah. That's very high. And overall 17% of us are, um, are undecided and that rises to 25% of women. So there's yeah, still... Actually, so on, on that, though, that's, it's normal to, to find a higher number of women and women who say they're undecided than men. Yep. Isn't that basically because men are stupid? Yes, it is, like, yes, of course. Like, basically, we don't, we don't like saying we don't know. Yep. So even yep. if we don't know the answer, we just yep. don't answer anyway. Yeah, even so if it's actually, total bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's, been quite, yeah. there's been quite a lot of talk about the, the, the undecided women swimming in this. Yeah. Is it not the case that actually the, the, the number... Well, I, mm, I don't know. I don't know. The, the yeah, other I don't thing, know either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh come on! <laughs> Too easy. <laughs> what I would say is the sun is forecasting eleven inches of snow next week. Uh, if that happens, that all bets are off. That is volatile. Uh, that's, that's volatile. Good. Amazing. Well, um, thank you. Now, next uh, final final thoughts. Well, final thoughts. Final presentation um, from uh, Professor Anand Menon. But I mean, as James was kind enough to say in his opening remarks, I don't know anything about elections or voters. So, and as this is the last session of the day, I want to sort of zoom out a little bit and talk about the implications of what's going on. It seems to me there are two things going on in politics. There's volatility, but there's also polarization, and not just polarization around Brexit. I mean, for those, those who got frustrated with post-1997 managerial politics and with battles over confidence, competence and not ideas. I mean, this, this election is a bit of a dream come true, isn't it? This is a battle for the soul of the country. It's a battle of ideas. It's a battle about what the state is for. I mean, this is ideological politics front and center. And I just want to ask four questions about what that combination of volatility and polarization means. And the first question, I suppose, is how does a democratic political system best deal with it? And here, I mean, I've got no answers to any of these. These are all blogs I've been thinking of for a while, so you're going to help me write them over the course of the next <laughs> hour. Uh, compare us with France, okay? 
We are the sort of let it all hang out brigade when it comes to division and polarization. It's there for us to see. It's front and center in our politics. France is equally polarized. You know, 42% of the French voted Mélenchon or Le Pen in the presidential election last time. They ended up with Macron. So they have a political system that hides division and hides polarization. And a question I'll put to you is, ultimately, which is the best way of dealing with it? Is it to tamp it down or is it to let it all out there? I don't think we know the answer to that, but I think the question is quite an important one. The second thing about volatility, and this just goes back to the last panel when they were talking about the red wall. Uh, if Boris Johnson assembles a values coalition as opposed to the class coalition, the class-based politics we are used to, how easy will it be for him to govern? Because the problem with that is if you have traditional... Tory MPs from traditional seats next to a Tory MP for, for Wakefield, which I'm practicing saying over and over again. Uh, you know, people from those traditional Labour seats have very different economic interests. They tend to have disproportionately high numbers of jobs in the manufacturing sector, for instance. How does non-participation in a customs union look to them when it's held up against their chances of re-election? So that's the other thing is, how do you devise an economic platform for a values coalition? I think the answer is with great difficulty. The third thing about our politics at the moment, and again, I think this is global and not just British, is whether this sort of polarization leads to bad policies? And I think the initial answer is yes, because all over the world, the answer to this seems to be to chuck money at it in a very unfocused, random way, and in a way which actually the state might not be able to cope with. So if bad politics or divisive politics leads to bad policy, where do we go from there? Because actually we might find out in four or five years' time that none of the problems that we're trying to respond to have been responded to because we're doing it in a knee-jerk, ill-thought-out way and in a way that actually doesn't really respond to anyone's concerns. And the final question, I suppose, is what does this sort of politics mean for the fundamentals of liberal democracy? One of the striking things about this election is that at least three of the parties are standing on what I would call openly populist platforms. So the prime minister is people versus parliament. Labour are people versus the establishment. And Nigel Farage is people versus everyone. Uh, but it is quite striking that you have three parties espousing that kind of rhetoric at a time when our institutions are clearly being challenged. The civil service is being challenged in a number of ways. The judiciary, we've seen talk of the need for parliamentary hearings, the appointment of judges, because judges are playing an explicitly political role. How robust is liberal democracy to these twin threats of volatility and polarization? As I said, I don't know the answer to any of those. I mean, on the last one, I tend to think we're in a political crisis rather than a constitutional one as yet, but I see a constitutional crisis being a potential issue over the next five years. But in macro terms, it seems to me, looking beyond the voters and looking beyond next Thursday, there are some very, very big questions we're going to have to wrestle with as a result of this sort of politics. Thank you very much, Aaron. Actually, I'm just following on from that, a question for, for all three of you, really, I suppose, um, about the way, uh, looking beyond election, if it's possible to do, about the way the electorate will regard their next government. I mean, they, they, eventually they're going to get one. I mean, you know, sooner or later, we, there will be a next government of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Um, and obviously, elections fo focus the you know, attention on the relationship between politicians and the electorate. But actually, governments also have a relationship with the electorate. Public opinion does matter to the way the way you Remember govern. Permanent campaign, permanent campaign yeah. Um, uh, so what, I mean, what do you think 
the, the, the electorate as we currently understand it, what will they expect of their next government? Will they actually, to, to pick up on and its values-based points, will they be looking for someone to champion their values and push forward their, their, their cultural agenda? Or will despair be more prevalent? Will they just think, actually, yes, they promised a load of things, but we don't really expect them to deliver any of them because we know it was all nonsense and we hate them all? Um, I mean, I, I'm just curious to know if, if, if volatility means more constraint on government or actually less. You know, who wants to go first on that? Uh, I, think, I think there's a key point around the issue of Brexit. Uh, I think if you campaign on the idea of getting Brexit done and then it becomes clear or clearer that actually Brexit may be carrying on in one form or another, at least debates around the technicalities of Brexit are carrying on for a year, two years, five years, ten years. What that does for the people who voted leave because they were dissatisfied, distrusting, and disapproving of the entire political system, political class, and political uh, figures in the first place, what that does to them, I think, is a really interesting question. Uh, because I think, that, uh, I think that there are a number of people voting next week who are willing to give Boris Johnson the benefit of the doubt, almost as a sort of last best hope. And... I imagine that those people in six months or a year's time will be disappointed, and how that disappointment manifests itself is going to be interesting. I want to come back to that point. That was, that was the next question coming up, so you've preempted that. But Deborah, um, yeah, governing. Mean, I, I, think, I think you're absolutely right that Brexit is going to be the first thing that people think about, or at least they would like not to think about, because in the yeah. end, um, as Boris Johnson has neatly encapsulated with his own slogan, for most people it's not actually about... Brexit or not Brexit, but simply about it not being the Brexit process anymore. Um, and if he can find a way, assuming it's him, of getting things done very swiftly, then that, that will be to the good. And I think, I mean, we're finding the majority of people look back now and say, A, they wish there hadn't been a referendum, and they think that whether they will leave or remain. And the majority of people also would simply like Brexit to be done, if that means getting rid of the argument. But, but hang on, it's, it's more complicated than that. If you ask people whether they agree or disagree with the line, get Brexit done, you get 70, 75% yeah. of people yeah. agreeing with it. If you give people the choice between getting Brexit done as soon as possible, even if it means they don't get what they want from Brexit, or getting what they want from Brexit, even if it takes a bit longer, Two-thirds of people want what they well, want for Brexit, can I, can even I, yeah. if it takes a bit longer. Can I ask my, my, my follow-up question, and probably drag Anand in on this point? Because uh, on this, this question of uh, you know, getting Brexit done, obviously we know at a, the point of policy and process, that's nonsense. You cannot get Brexit done by the 31st of January. You just open a new, uh, a new, a new chapter. We, we know that. Yes, the people yeah, exactly. in this room this know is that. My, this is my point. So... Yeah, you, you've, Joe, you've, you've described the possibility for disappointment, backlash, dis further disillusion. Is it not possible that actually for a lot of people, assuming a prime minister does actually legally end EU membership on the 31st of January, there's a great big ceremony, flags, the, the blue, and, blue and gold flags are hauled down across the country, a lot of the trappings are changed. 
that actually Brexit will have been done. Yes, there will be talk in you know you talk in newspapers and on the TV news that they don't really watch about some interminable row about the exact nature of our relationship over trade and tariff tariff schedules. Uh, but the salience of the issue will start to drop, and that for a lot of people, Brexit really will have been done. Is I, that is that possible? I, I think it. I think it's possible, but I think. Getting Brexit done suggests you move on to other things, hmm. and other things become important in political discourse on the news every uh, every night. My concern, from a public opinion point of view, is that that will not happen, and simply the arguments over the withdrawal agreement will be replaced by the arguments over the trade deal, and people will perceive it actually not to have, uh, to have I mean, been done. Not, you know, from, thank you. I mean, from a broadcaster's point of view, everybody wants to move on there as well. And my feeling is that, you know, any half-decent government can create news stories around a bit of funding on the NHS. Or I, I don't agree with you, actually. I, I think the, the problem will be if we don't manage to Brexit in terms of, you know, actually how 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 he then deals well, with that. Because if, assuming if, that we do, if, I think, if, if, I think Brexit, we if Brexit becomes essentially trade negotiation, trade is really boring. It's so but, boring. But, but this, this is where we hand it around. I mean, what, what, the, the, what does the experience elsewhere in other countries tell us about how, how, trade, how trade sits in the, in the salience of the priority order for, uh, for electorates? I think we're missing an intermediary step here, which is transition. Uh, and I think transition, I don't know, but it certainly holds the possibility of being quite politically explosive in two ways, at least. Firstly, there is the deadline, okay, and the deadline is the end of June, and it is there in black and white in the Conservative manifesto, we will not extend transition. I wonder. Uh, I don't know, but I wonder. promise from Boris Johnson. Yep, indeed, one of those ditches again. Uh, I don't, it is perfectly, let me put it this way, I think it is perfectly conceivable that he changes his mind. What happens when he changes his mind and whether we end up in some sort of hideous groundhog day of lots of Steve Baker on the telly attacking a Conservative Prime Minister for betraying pledges over Brexit, I don't know. I mean, it seems to me he might have a longer honeymoon than that, but that's the first flashpoint. Uh, because thereafter, the EU continues to legislate, and we're in a situation where every piece of EU legislation is binding on us, but we have no say over it. And I think that, politically, is not going to be easy to cover up. Uh, so, well before we get to trade, uh, and there are some big issues. Remember, trade isn't just about trade. What we have to do before we do trade, I mean, in a rational world, and maybe it isn't a rational world, a precursor to doing trade talks is to figure out what sort of economy you want to be. Okay, do you want to be open or closed? How big is the role of the state? There's an awful lot of ambiguity around on that score. Uh, and so those are the debates, I think, which might not be Brexit per se, but will be very Brexit-related and will stop us doing other things that might clog up the political system over the next couple of years at least. And there, and there are things would not even be debated in the House of Commons, would they? I mean, you know, we don't normally. Thank you. Sorry? I don't know how the woman has ended up with no microphone, but anyway, that's just uh, sexism. How it seems to be it is, I think. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I know. I notice he's hanging on to it. <laughs> the rest of us are sharing nicely. <laughs> um, you know, trade deals are not something that are debated usually in, in the House, and it's not. You know, they just happen, and. I, I, I really think, 
yeah, there'll be lots of people who are very interested, people in this room, but, but actually I think that the, you know, the, most of the political class and the public will move on and there will be an appetite on both their fronts and the media front to move on and I think we'll hear a lot less. I, I think that's just inevitable. But if, if it's in the interests of a Nigel Farage or a Nigel Farage type character to keep this in the public, uh, in the, the public's attention as a way to boost support for an anti-establishment movement or party, then I can, in the same way that it's in the interests of Alastair Campbell to keep it in the uh, in the public uh, the public attention from a from a Remain point would, of view. I think that really overestimates the power of uh, Nigel Farage, who you know, let's face it, as I said, two out of eight people in a group last week thought was the leader of the Lib Dems anyway. So you know, I, I just don't think I think it's over for him actually once Brexit has happened. I mean, the one thing I would say is, I mean, this is just speaking for myself, is I've kind of forgotten what majority government looks like. Uh, and as Deborah says, just how basically irre irrelevant the House of Commons becomes when you have a sort of majority government that can do what it wants. And actually, at that point, you know, you can dislike it all you like, but you're not going to get a say because the government's going to decide and it has a majority in the House. So I think actually getting back into that mindset, if there is a majority... Uh, you might well be right that actually you can do this and, without and, involving and the And presumably in the, that sort of central scenario that I think most people still have, that the most likely outcome is if we end up with a majority Tory government, then we have to factor in what happens to the opposition parties following that election. <laughs> because there may, there, be, there may be well be a period without any effective opposition or without, without coherent or opposition. Even less effective well, opposition. I mean, yeah, I, I think that's right. And there'll be a massive regrouping. Um, and meanwhile, you know, you'll have the NHS in crisis. You will have, you know, a lot of things happening that have to get people's attention and crime i mean that you know these are the things that the public want to hear about um not europe you know if you ask people i mean this is the brexit election it's top of people's minds but actually if you say what's going to affect you and your family they don't talk about brexit they talk about other things I mean, I, I, this, I, at this point i actually share, share a joke which is a friend of mine who's a senior civil servant in the department for exit in the Euro european union has been making on and off for the last two years or so every so often she just sort of puts her head in her hands and just tell them we've already left. <laughs> yes. They won't know. We just put out the press release, take the flag down, and then we can all move on. We, we asked this last year for, uh, I can't remember off the top of my head who it was for, but 5% of people did think that we had left uh, already. But it, it, uh, and it, it, and it, it, you can it, e take the flags down, you can easily get that number up. Yeah. Well, and to that point, and much more than 5%, pe people in focus groups would say to me endlessly, we voted to leave. Why haven't we left? You know, the, because people just have no sense of the yeah. process or what it means and no interest in it whatsoever. I think there's a wider point to be made, though, about Brexit as a symptom of a wider issue uh, and a wider, as I say, dissatisfaction. That dissatisfaction is not driven by Brexit. Brexit is driven yes. by that dissatisfaction. Well, and, I, and I suspect that Brexit will be held up as a continual... The reason I think it will continue to be an issue is because I think it will be continually held up as an example along with the problems of globalization that certain sections of the country face, the problems with an aging population that a lot of people are going to face, etc., etc. Mm -hmm. But Brexit will be seen as something that can be easily latched onto that people, if not interested in, can at least relate to in simple leave and remain terms. On that, on the, the underlying causes of Brexit, if you like, um, 
Uh, I mean, Adam talks about values, and we, we know that you can predict relatively accurately someone's leave or vote, sorry, leave or remain preference by looking at questions of death penalty. And uh, the, the, other, I mean, the other one I'm, I'm fascinated by, we do a lot of work on my, you know, my little think tank, is on educational difference. That, you know, the, you know, the well, that correlates with age, which yes. also well, with yeah. um, But uh, to, to pick up on Anna's very good question for, you know, from earlier, if uh, the electorate does divide into groups with certain values, certain education levels, certain cultural outlooks. Um, how easy will it be for politicians, will it be possible for politicians to actually uh, produce policy platforms that, you know, well, either capture all of, you know, capture, you know, capture in a, a plurality of the electorate? Um, and once upon a time, I, I, you know, sorry, once upon a time, when I started writing about politics, 20 years ago, it was assumed that the way you did politics was to charge to the middle, <coughs> produce something that captured as many people just to the right of centre and as many people to the left of centre as possible, and that's how you built your governing coalition. Yeah, that's how you produced consent for, for a policy. Is it possible to split the difference and produce a plurality with an electorate who is divided around, not, around values, not around left-right economic questions? Well, I mean, you, you do both. I suppose the, the, the facetious answer would be lots of pretty Patel and investment in the NHS. Mm -hmm. Okay, I mean, that's, yeah. that's, that's the way you keep the Leave Coalition together. Yes. Uh, whether that is a coherent manifesto for but, five years of government... But, that's, but, that, but that's, that's governing for the Leave Coalition. That's not, that's not governing for... How do you govern for most of the Leavers and most of the Remainers? Lots of money for um, the NHS does it. The pretty um, Patel less... Yeah. <laughs> So pretty, tough on pretty Patel, tough on the causes of pretty Patel. <laughs> um, um, I think it's sorry. I think <laughs> you'd had it too long. <laughs> I think it's extraordinarily difficult. I think I think what you have to what you have to hope is that those divisions in society will over time decline. But that is a big, big question mark. And I think as long as, uh, as long as Britain remains so divided on, on these positional issues rather than valence issues that were so popular in the early 2000s and, uh, and going back to the 1990s, if it's about these positional issues and people are adopting opposing positional issues and at the same time compromise and the entire concept of compromise is being seen surrender and as, as surrender and weakness, then that's that's a very very different. You, know, that, that, you, you mentioned Trump earlier on. That that is you know, that, that you're, you're essentially saying that we are heading down the road of uh, U.S. culture war politics. Is that well? That is a possible pathway. As but I say, just it, just, it, just, it, just say yes. Just say yes. <laughs> it, I, but, but I think it is worth saying that what people want is the opposite of that, despite everything. You know. Yeah, but they would say that, wouldn't they? Well, but, but when, when, uh, they, what, 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 when, they, when they say they want that, do they mean they just want, they just want their side to win? Which is, no, which is exactly the case with the Brexit argument. Yeah. They I, say we want we want compromise, we I want it to be over and done with. But is. obviously, I want to remain. I, I or think leave. that people want people are very aware of divisions in the country. Divisions around Brexit are very apparent. You know, people have arguments in the workplace, people have arguments in their family. I mean, 64% of people think that Brexit has been bad for their mental health. Um, and that rises to seven out of 10 for women who are, you know, more affected by arguments and, um, you know, discord in their community and so forth. And I, I think people do, but they're obviously looking for leadership here. 
There's an opportunity for politicians to fill that space. They're not doing it at the minute. I think this partly takes us back to what they spoke about on the last panel, which is I think a lot will hinge on who the leader of the opposition is uh, if Jeremy Corbyn goes. Yeah. Uh, that is to say, if, if it looks like someone who looks like Jeremy Corbyn, then I think we continue like this. But I think if, in the unlikely event that the Labour members choose someone who is more centrist, let's say, then that changes the stakes, I think, oh, name, because name, then you name, have... Name, name names, name names. That's a bloody good question. Tony Blair, Tony Blair, uh, Tony yeah. Blair. <laughs> hands up, who wants Tony Blair back? Don't put your hands well, there, up. There are, there are different shades, though, aren't there? I mean, you know, John, John McDonnell's candidate is... Um, uh, Becky Be Be <laughs> Be 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 um, you know, Jeremy Corbyn's is Laura Pidcock. They are both very much in the mould of their two mentors. But there are other front runners who it's not at all impossible that the party would go for, like Keir Starmer or Emily Thornberry, who are... But I Jess Phillips will find it hard to get elected by the party as it stands. I can't see. Do you think? But don't you think Keir Starmer would find it difficult yes, to get yes. elected by the membership as well? Harder, but not. I think it's oh, well, not <laughs> impossible. I mean, obviously, I, I think. You know, I think it's not impossible. I think it's easier than Jess Phillips, but then you know, yeah. I think that's. I think we, we, not we, we, we've reached the audience participation section of the, uh, <laughs> of, the of the entertainment. So I will actually uh, open up to, uh, to, to to questions. I'm going to go to. In fact, I'm going to be terrible, fa terrible favors. I'm going to ask my, my former former colleague from long ago, Jonathan Elizabeth. For, uh, to, to ask a question. Um, John Elizabeth from Brexit Central. I was struck by Deborah, you saying just how historically negative. Did you see, did you, oh. There's a camera behind you. Oh, sorry. sorry. Um, <laughs> I was struck by you were saying how historically negative the ratings are for both Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn. One would have thought that would be a circumstance, particularly given the chasm politically between the two parties, that that was a perfect moment for third and minor yeah. parties to come to the fore, and yet exactly the opposite seems to be happening. Yep. Why? I honestly don't have an answer to that. I mean, I think that um, it, it is extraordinary. Uh, oh. Yeah, okay. It is extraordinary. Um, that I didn't say they were historically bad, actually. I mean, his, I mean Boris Johnson's actually historically very good. Um, it, it's much more recently that he's become the very divisive character that he now is. Um, and I think, as I think you mentioned, Joe, didn't you? That I mean, he's still poor, he's still polling just in net positive. Um, I mean, it's not great, obviously, but it's, uh, it's, it's better, better than everybody good else. Historical standards. Um, but yeah, you would absolutely think that. But I think that you know, basically, Joe Swinson has not cut through, and Nigel Farage is seen as a busted flush. And I just, who else is there? I mean, yeah. Um, I'm going to go to that. The lady there in the, in the red spectacles. Um, there's a microphone. There's a microphone behind you, and then I'm going to come back. Come back this way. We, we may we may start doing groups of questions. Sorry, I, I, I'm just speechless, but I'm going to try and say something. Good. First um, of all, can, 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 well, it, can it be something that ends with a question mark? Well, first of all, if Easy. you say that Nigel Farage is a busted flush, then why is he all over the BBC all the time? Secondly, why do you say? bringing the EU flags down all over the country. You hardly ever see an EU flag in this country. You certainly don't see one behind the Prime Minister when he or she okay. is, is on the box. You don't see one on every town hall in the country as you do if you go to the tiniest little village in France or Italy. So you're giving a very strange so, idea so, 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 of what the EU is currently like. Why are you not acknowledging the immense, immense influence of an extremely right-wing, 
very, very wealthy set of press barons because maybe, they maybe beyond, are the people who argument. determine um, what people think okay, so in this country. The, the BBC, the, flag, the flags and the, the wicked right-wing conspiracy. Um, I think we're, we're not in a position to answer for the BBC's editorial decisions. Um, uh, since I was, the, I was the one who raised the flag, so I'll say um, essentially the flags are something that could be put on television by someone who was trying to, to, to give the, a visual representation of our departure from the European Union, which may well resonate with a lot of voters. Indeed, you could raise the flags in order to then lower you could indeed. Um, <laughs> and can, uh, can I just add one yes. thing there, though, which is that, I mean, I, I, I do agree with you about that. And the very first piece of political research that I did was in the 1980s, where I was commissioned to do something for the Labour Group in Europe. And I did a piece of work to look at people's attitudes towards the European Parliament and, and you know, back in the day. And even then, um, people had literally nothing positive to say. They knew nothing about it. It was a little bit different in Scotland, where, to your point, they were more likely to say, I have seen uh, you know, the European flag by that bridge or by that community centre, but we just didn't do it this side of the border. And yeah, I remember reporting back then and saying, if you want Europe to be central in people's lives, you have to sing its praises a little bit more. And you know, basically, that, uh, they, I, as usual, I was ignored. And so. the, the, final, the final point, I should, uh, um, a confession, I worked for the Daily Telegraph for 10 years, so I have a direct relationship with the vast, wicked, evil, right-wing billionaire conspiracy. Um, uh, without going into too much detail, knowing some, some wicked right-wing you know, billionaires who want to uh, manipulate democracy in, in all its forms, one of the interesting things you find talking to them about Brexit is they're convinced the establishment is out to stop them uh, and prevent them getting their way. Um, uh, it's interesting. Uh, on the other side of the mirror, you'll find that uh, yeah, other people also feel that there are, there are a group of people out there who are, who are also trying to thwart them. Um, I'm not saying that's true, that's true or not. I'm just saying that yeah, there are many different perspectives on this question. Anyway, we'll go to um, uh, that gentleman there uh, and that one there. We'll do two questions, two questions together. Um, hopefully, brief, brief questions with a, you know, with, a, with a question mark at the end. Okay. Um, going back to volatility as an mm. issue. Have we run out of time for events, dear boy? <laughs> or, and, for instance, will the Prime Minister lose his seat in Oxbridge? Uh, no, he won't. No. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, we've said, yeah, well, well yes, I mean, Joe jo mentioned that, but we you know, did. Um, I think Peter Wilson-Smith, one of the uh, problems I think with Brexit is that our politicians have never been honest about the consequences. <laughs> and I felt in the discussion about whether everyone will move on if it happens on 31st of Jan, we were in danger of falling into that trap because I, I don't think in five years' time no one's going to notice the very good work UK and Changing Europe has done about how we'll be X percent worse off. That'll get lost in the wash. No one's interested in trade agreements in the general public. But when you make radical changes to your trading, there are winners and losers, and the losers are very visible. And unless we have a, a, a brino, as the ERG call it, if there are substantial sure, yes. changes, there are going to be a real effects on the real economy, which can will I, affect people's jobs. Good question. Can I, can I try and focus that? We're short of time. So can I ask the panel um, briefly, what are the... Can you each imagine one event that could take place in the, in the remaining week or so of the campaign that could make a material difference to the outcome? Um, and secondly, probably more a question for Anand on this question of trade... Obviously, we don't, well, all of you possibly, we don't tend to notice wealth foregone and growth that doesn't take place. What are the aspects of our future trading relationship with the European Union and other, 
other developed economies that we might actually notice in our day-to-day -day lives? What, what, what are the chlorinated chickens of the, uh, of, of, of the, of the decades ahead, do you think? Shall I start with the events? In, ter in terms of the events, I think that uh, I think that the debate on Friday between Boris Johnson and uh, and Jeremy Corbyn holds the greatest potential to make a change in terms of the known unknowns. I actually don't think it will make much difference because debates in this country, with the exception of the very first one in 2010, haven't made a debate, uh, haven't made a difference. I think that Jeremy Corbyn may, however, be tempted to throw caution to the wind, at least to some degree, if he thinks that he needs to do that in order to close the gap sufficiently. But I think if it's going to happen, it will actually be through an unknown unknown event to channel Donald Rumsfeld rather than a known unknown. And it could be something like chlorinated chicken that people can really latch on to even though it represents something very, very small, but with much wider ramifications. But given how little people are noticing um, of anything, I think it's, it's got to be pretty unlikely, hasn't it? I mean, there are some, there are some pretty sort of hairy rumours flying around at the moment, and I presume there are some big stories being lined up for the weekend. I think there's a Jennifer R. Curie one, for instance. Um, but, you know, in the end, I think, I think it's all quite baked in now. I think people are very clear about how they feel um, and the only unknown <coughs> is actually what they then do about that because there are enough people who are undecided that they could make Can a bit of a difference. On the, well, I'm knitting, two, knitting the two questions together slightly, sorry. Um, in your focus group so far, has the idea of Brexit leading to a trade deal with the, with the United States leading to the privatisation of, of the NHS, has that cut through particularly? No. Thank you. No, it hasn't done in the polls either. No. I suppose one other question on that is how many people are going to vote by postal vote so that actually what happens in the next week or 10 days doesn't matter as far as they're concerned. But uh, It's estimated about a quarter of people vote by postal vote, so that could... 90% of sun readers after they've seen the snow forecast, presumably. <laughs> uh, on, on, I mean, the, the analogy I used for Theresa May's deal was a slow puncture. Uh, and I use that analogy in two ways. One, because it'll take a while to see what, to figure out what's happening, to notice, because it won't be a sudden cliff edge, it will be gradual. Uh, and secondly, it would take so long that when you look back, you'd never be quite sure where you picked it up in the first place. That's to say, it would be vague enough and enough time would have passed that actually it wouldn't be absolutely crystal clear this is a Brexit effect, because other things would have happened in the interim. With Boris Johnson, the impact of the deal he looks to be going for would be more severe and require more adjustment, particularly for manufacturing. And of course, the big open question about Boris Johnson is whether there's a deal at all. Now, in the event that we leave at the end of next year on WTO terms, we will see some stuff happening very, very quickly, particularly in manufacturing, I think, uh, which is part of the reason why I pose that question about what happens to those traditional Labour seats if they voted for Tory MPs, then all of a sudden, there's a sudden shock to manufacturing industry in those constituencies. Then I, I think that could be an issue. I think that might explain Minister. last week's conservative announcement about the ending end of state of state state aid rules. But no, no, absolutely. And I do think actually because because of the economic policies we've lived through for the last ten years, there is considerable scope for the state to brandish its checkbook and try and cushion some of the immediate effects if it wants to. And all the parties seem quite likely, or both the parties who are likely to form a government seem quite likely to do that. Right, we have about four minutes left. So I'm going to two people have caught my eye. The gentleman on the front has been waiting patiently and the chap at the back in the red lanyard. So uh, you, 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 you first, sir. Oh, there's one just, just oh, thank you. Yep. 
Thank you. Now, we are obviously a very divided nation, but how does the current division compare with, for example, the three-day week, the winter of discontent, the minor strike, or more recently, the Iraq war? Historic, historic comparisons, okay. And the gentleman at the back standing... Um, oh, um, slowly, 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 it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. I, um, I made political programs for BBC for many, many years. I don't any longer, but my colleagues who are still there are aghast at how they are still making programs dominated by Brexit day mm. after day, week <laughs> after week, when you're asking the same questions and getting variations mm. on the same answers as those trenches mm. get deeper and talking of getting the nation together and so on is complete bollocks at the moment. What, what uh, I'd like will, to Will no one think of the broadcasters? Our, our four panellists is if we are, all of us in this room, happen to be here in December next year, how high on the agenda will facets of Brexit be then? Okay, great. So uh, in, in order, who, who wants to go first on, on history before we go, we go on to predictions for this time next year? I mean, the, obvious historic, the, the obvious difference with, say, the early 1980s and the miners' strike is that this is a division that cuts through the parties, so it doesn't reinforce party lines, it blurs them. In fact, I was, just sort of, I was thinking about this the other day, and I was thinking, actually, maybe the best historical analogy for this is the Dreyfus scandal, because it was a value scandal. It was about mm. identity, it was about values, and the political system found it very, very, and it, and it cut across party loyalties because of that. And mm. God help us, the Dreyfus scandal took a long, long time. Uh, well, it took a long, long time to France to get over the Dreyfus scandal. So if that is an accurate analogy, we're stuck with this for a while to come. It, it does reflect class divides, though, um, as, yeah, as it did in that, yeah. And, and compared with Iraq, um, you know, kind of no comparison. I don't think there was anything like the same level of passion and interest in the Iraq war as there is in, in what's going on now. To Barney's question, um, uh, I don't think we'll be talking about Brexit very much. Joe? I think a lot depends on the election result. By this oh. time next year, by this time next year, we could be discussing the two general elections that we had. <laughs> this, this, yes. The Brexit referendum and the Scottish mm. independence referendum. Alternatively, we could be talking about the end of the first of five years of solid Conservative government. Uh, I think it's very difficult to say. We'll have four mics next year. No yes. Um, uh, well, I, you, you, I was going to end by asking, asking you all to predict who'll, who'll be Prime Minister on the, on the 31st of, uh, of December this year. Should, should, should we do that? Do you want to do that? Yes, this year. Who's, who'll, be, who'll be Prime Minister at the end of the, uh, at the, end of the year, Joe? Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson. I'm not saying. Um, uh, Chair's prerogative. Uh, thank you all very much for coming, for staying uh, to, the, to the very bitter end here. Uh, thank you very much to UK and Journey Europe for, uh, for, for organising this. And especially thank you very much to our... And the British Election Study. Sorry, Jane. Sorry, Jane. He will be, he will be on ITV next Thursday night, all night. And yeah, watch that, not, not, whatever he, not, not the one he's on. Uh, <laughs> Thank you very much to Joe, Joe Twyman from Delta Pole. Thank you to Deborah Madison from Britain Thinks. And thank you to Anand Menon. Thank you to all of you. Thank you. Thank you.